On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to ask the question, what do you do with idiots who would drive 308 kilometers an hour on the QEW? Do you demand car makers not be able to make fast cars? Or do you increase the penalties and come down punitively on those who would show no personal responsibility? We're also going to be talking about airfares because there are people now, experts in the industry, who say when this whole thing is over, if you want to fly, you are going to pay for it. Is that really what's going to happen? And Don Robertson will join us. We're going to chat about all kinds of stuff. Bobby Orr, Wayne Gretzky, the Canada Cups. And who you, what hockey player you would want to see in a 10-part series like they're doing on Michael Jordan. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Did you hear the story from this weekend, from Saturday night, that we all, well, most of us heard about on Sunday or today? Two 19-year-olds were caught going on a joyride on the QEW. Talking about Highway Star. My goodness. Uh, did you hear the, the, the speed they were caught at? 308 kilometers an hour. That's not a typo. 308 kilometers an hour. I'm reasonably sure that if I tried to take my 2011 Toyota Camry and get it up to 308 kilometers an hour, it would burst apart and break into flames before I got half that way to that speed. 300 and eight kilometers an hour. Hands up if any of you out there have a car right now that could even get to 308 kilometers an hour. And so they've been charged and they're going to have their day in court as the police say and all the rest. And that's true. That's fine. Here's the problem with this. This began a great online debate on the weekend, which was A, do you put new rules into place that say cars can't be built to go that fast? Or do you do something else with the laws that make it really, uh, that discourages people from driving like that? Now I'm, I'm a 100% not in the first camp. The idea of saying, we're now going to put rules on how fast a car you can drive. Look, we do still have personal responsibility. And the last thing, that I want is people giving governments more power to create more rules. That's not what we need. We don't need more rules. We need better rules. We need better enforced rules and we need more punitive rules, quite frankly, for stuff like this. They took the car away for seven days. It's a Mercedes. It's probably a beautiful car. If you can get it up to 308 kilometers an hour, I'm guessing it's a really nice car. Here's what should have happened in my mind. You take that car and that car never comes back. There's a rule that people might pay attention to, especially 19 year olds. Cause now you got to go home and tell mom and dad that your hundred thousand dollar Mercedes just got taken away and you're not getting it back. That see, I'm thinking here, well, probably, you know what? The kid may get in trouble a little bit, but in the end, eh, loses his license for a little while, a couple of years, gets a fine. If you can afford $100,000 or whatever it is, I don't know, it's probably that much, but if you can afford a car like that, you can probably afford the fine. No, no pain, no real pain. You should, in my mind, the car should go. The car should absolutely go. And here's the choice. You tell the parents, hey, your idiot kid just got busted doing 308 kilometers an hour on the highway. Did you let him take that car? And if you did, you're responsible for him. So you've lost your car. And if the adult, if the parent says, no, I didn't tell him he could use the car, then that's a stolen car. And the kid then can go to jail with additional charges and get much more punitive penalties applied. The idea that somehow that the rules that we have right now will give the car back to the parents after a period of time and the kid gets some sort of penalty. Look, the car should be gone. The kid and, I, and some people will lose their minds at this. I don't mind. If you're caught driving more than 50 kilometers an hour over the limit, I mean, we're not talking about a little speeding ticket. We're talking about blowing. There's no possible way that if you're going 50 kilometers an hour over the limit, there is no possible way you could be misunderstanding what the speed limit was. 
This is intentional. If you're caught going 50 kilometers an hour or more over the limit, your car should be taken forever and you should lose your license forever. Maybe if your wife is in the back seat giving birth and the head is breaching, we will make an exception for you. But otherwise, no. Or maybe if someone in the backseat of the car is bleeding out and you have to get them to the hospital, we will say, okay, we will cut you some slack in this particular case. But otherwise, uh uh-uh. There is no good acceptable reason to be going 50 kilometers or more over, let alone 208 kilometers an hour more over the limit. But I want to know from you, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back. Would you be more inclined to say, make rules that prevent car companies from making cars that go this fast or put stricter, more hefty fines, penalties, costs on the drivers who decide to break the law in this way and leave the personal responsibility in place, but really make it so it stings when you get nailed. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Make the rule that you can't have a car that goes this fast or make a rule that says you can have it, but if you abuse it, man, it's going to hurt. 905-645-3221 star 9900. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting about... These two 19-year-olds, one who was driving, one, I guess, I, I'm assuming he was enthusiastically along for the ride. We don't really know that part of the story. But they were stopped on Saturday night going 300 an hour on the QEW. As I said a moment ago, I don't even know how you go that fast without going airborne. Good thing they didn't stick their arm out the window. They would have become like plane wings and gone airborne. They would have taken off. But three kilometers an hour. And there are charges and there's going to be days in court and there's going to be fines or jail or whatever else. I hope jail in this particular case. How could it not be? But anyway, it, this uh, to me, it started a debate on the weekend that I somehow got involved with online. And that was, do you, if you're the government, you see, because there's now been 150 charges like this, not this speed, but 150 along the QEW drivers charged and vehicles impounded for seven days, meaning driving at a crazy speed along the QEW. This is not the first time. Clearly, whatever rules are in place are not being a deterrent. They're not working. So would you put rules in that say car companies cannot make cars that go over a certain speed? Or would you say, no, no, we have personal responsibility. You can buy whatever car you want. But if you drive it like a maniac, like a complete idiot, you're going to pay an incredibly hefty price. That's mine. No more rules for the government. Just have better rules. Have heftier, harder, more punitive rules that say you're going to lose your car if you drive like this, even if it's daddy's car or mommy's car. And you're going to go to jail. And here's the other thing. You're never going to drive again because this was no accident. This was no mistake. What would you do? Michelle joins me on the line today. Michelle, how are you this evening? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Would you be in favor, more in favor of the rules against fast cars or just say if you are an idiot, you're going to pay the price? Well, personally, my thinking is that the child, because we're going to call him a child, was in the wrong. And we also have to look at the parent. Right? Because in my thinking, the child should be paying for a car on his own. Well, Michelle, because I agree. No, it is a privilege. It is a privilege. Yes. It's a privilege. 100% it is. Because it gives you the ability to to move where lots of people in our society don't have that privilege. Michelle, you're 100% right that it's a privilege. um, I'm not saying that the parents are bad, but, you know, we have to look at that in a sense that, as a parent, we have to make our our young adult children responsible for what they do. 
Michelle, oh, I thank you for the way. call very much. Michelle, I got to take another call, but I thank you so much for calling. I do appreciate it. The only thing I'll take issue with with Michelle is it's not a child. He's 19. He knows. He knows. And this was not a mistake. He was 208 kilometers an hour over the limit. Roger is with us this evening. Roger, how are you tonight? Hello. Uh, Hello, hello Scott. Uh, I uh, just want to weigh in on your uh, please over the uh, uh, speeding issue. I think it's, uh, it should be uh, oh, the uh, car manufacturer's responsibility for making the cars not go that fast, uh, whether it be a Mercedes-Benz or Ferrari or even a Hyundai. There's no reason why uh, anybody needs to go over 110 kilometers an hour. So that's- Roger, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question, Roger. Yes. Uh, and I've heard your argument and the argument, I mean, look, there is, there is some logic in what you say, but what about saying then to car manufacturers, we have drunk drivers that kill people. Should, should car manufacturers be responsible to make a car not drivable if you have alcohol or if you like, what else uh, then for the people? Yeah, that's a good point, Scott, uh, too. Like, uh, I think the car manufacturers should, uh, Right from uh, day one, install uh, one of these alcohol uh, interlocks that the uh, uh, person has to breathe in uh, in ordinary, ordinary for it to start. It's uh, Roger. It's an interesting point. Thank you for the call. I got to get to Jamal really quickly. Uh, Jamal joins us on the line now. Jamal, how are you tonight? Good. Yourself? I'm good. Where do you stand on this? Put the responsibility on the manufacturers or on the people driving? Uh, you know, on the people driving because I feel. Um, as humans grow, we mature and something I would have done at 19 may not be something I would do today. Right. So I understand obviously the fact that he's a young guy and I think we've all been in that shoes where we get to drive and some of us are a little bit more confident. And I, I know myself when I was first started driving, I was like, Oh yeah, I got a car. I can drive fast. Now, you know, 12 years down the road, I don't drive the same way I did when I was 19. Um, I feel that now, obviously, I understand the impacts. And, you know, it's just things as you learn as you grow, right? You know, you might get in your first fender bender, and it, it takes a, a bigger toll on you than you initially thought when you were driving when you were younger, right? So, Jamal, uh, I appreciate that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Read a story in the Toronto Star on the weekend. Um, it didn't exactly thrill me, and it had nothing to do with the media outlet that carried it. It was quite the opposite. It was a story about flying, about air travel, which is something we have all taken for granted, I think, for a number of years now. Nothing to have flights available pretty much whenever you want, give or take. And you can probably find a flight if you're willing to go somewhere, you can find a flight at a reasonable price. You may have to travel in the middle of the night or whatever else, but you don't have to spend a fortune to travel anymore. Unlike the old days. Remember if you're old enough to remember when the airline industry was in its infancy or even a little after that, there was a glamor involved in flying. Well, that glamor, boy, if you've flown lately, you know, that glamor is gone. You are a sardine in a giant metal tin blasting through the sky. But you, but you do get where you're going, where you want to go, and you don't bankrupt yourself doing it. Well, this story that caught my attention said, here was the headline, why flying is about to get a lot more expensive for good. The idea is that so many changes are on the way when this whole COVID coronavirus thing ends that what we've grown accustomed to is now gone. Gabor Lukash is the president, founder, and coordinator of Air Passenger Rights. You can find that website online. He joins us now. Gabor, thanks for doing this today. Good afternoon. Good evening. Uh, let me read you a quote from um, one airline industry expert who was quoted in this piece. And she said this, if I had to make a prediction, I would say that flying will become a lot more expensive there will be a lot fewer options, and so you would have to be quite affluent and have a very good reason to fly to be able to justify it. Do you think that's where we're going? Do you think those days are coming back? Well, in the short run, it is quite possible that it will be true. Uh, we have to bear in mind that with the notion of social distancing, 
we will have to uh, have less passengers in the same space if we want to maintain proper social distancing on board an aircraft. And that means lower load factors. So something I will have to give, and that will likely be the price in a short run. Uh, the cured solution uh, to the situation will be anticipate a vaccine or a treatment accessible to everyone for the COVID-19 virus. And at that point, I don't quite see a reason why uh, things should not rebound to approximately where they used to be. Yeah, I mean, and I thought that's my inclination too, to say, okay, you know what, once this gets normalized a little bit, everything will go back. And then I thought, yeah, but when 9-11 happened, there are things that came into place, especially in the airlines and airports and stuff after 9-11 that we are still doing today and we're almost 20 years down the road they have not gone back but those were not economic aspects these were things like security checks which quite frankly uh they are quite rational and reasonable and what looking back uh, it was abnormal that they didn't have those security checks and that kind of oversight before 9-11 so uh i i don't think in terms of in terms of the market i don't think that 9-11 has had a permanent stamp on what the airline industry looked like or looked like before the COVID-19. Okay, so what happens, uh, Gabor, if we do, social distancing becomes longer than a five or six or seven month thing? I mean, some people have said that it'll take a year or two to get a vaccine. Some have said we'll never get a vaccine. We don't know yet. But if you have to take out a whole bunch of seats or not allow seats to be sold in an airline, as you mentioned, I mean, prices can only go up. And I'm wondering, having been used to paying lower prices, will people be willing to pay more to fly or will they just not fly? Uh, That's very hard to predict. Certainly, especially even in the current situation, even if somebody offered me a ticket for free, I would probably not fly unless I absolutely positively have to and there is no other way around it, simply because of the risk, the health risks associated with, with uh, flying. So I would, uh, that's already a deterrent and that's I'm finding a very significant deterrent. Um, in the kind of intermittent, intermediate period until there is a cure or a uh, vaccine is found, uh, certainly prices may be higher, although uh, we need to give it a second thought. Fuel prices are at record low, uh, and airline leasing companies may have to reconsider their positions because the airlines will be in a very good negotiating position. They can tell the leasing companies, well, you can take back your aircraft, or we can agree that we are going to pay now half or a third or a quarter or whatever uh, of the normal lease. And the, and the airline and the companies that have been leasing airlines can choose between whether get any money out of the aircraft or have their aircraft parked somewhere and collect dust and rust um, and uh, possibly lose its value constantly. So uh, what would be interesting, and that's a complex economic calculation, is to see how this how this uh, domino effect looks like in terms of the, the aircraft leasing, the airport operation, uh, the fuel prices, because fuel mind you, is a very significant expense of the airline industry and the other part is, of course, the aircraft and maintenance. So how those costs are going to change in a current economic climate is something we would be, I think, perhaps more thought needs to go into it. There's no doubt that those uh, who caution about the low load factors are right if all the costs remain the same, if the fuel prices remain as high as they used to be a year ago, if the aircraft leasing costs remain as high as they used to be a year ago. But those prices can also change with the market. So I would say it requires me some further research. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Gabor Lukash, who is the president, founder, and coordinator of Air Passenger Rights, about a story that um, cites a number of experts in the industry saying that airline travel may be changing depending on who you want to believe, maybe for the long term based on this with distancing and prices and security and everything else. But Gabor, there's another issue that you apparently have been dealing with that I'm a little shocked by. And then I looked this up today and it's not just you. It seems to be an issue a lot of places. And that is the idea that in the midst of all that's going on, 
airline passengers are having a tough time getting refunds for tickets they purchased before this happened. Is that correct? Unfortunately, that's correct with respect to Canadian airlines. What we are seeing is that airlines have taken passengers' hard-earned money, then canceled the flights for various economic reasons caused by the COVID-19, but the decision to cancel was an economic decision, not a government prohibition. And then they claim to passengers, we're only going to give you those future credit vouchers, future travel promises, but not back, actually giving you back the cash. This is unlawful, and airlines are required by law to issue full refunds to passengers to the original form of payment. And Canadian Airlines have been blatantly disregarding this obligation. Just for context, south of the border in the U.S., their Department of Transportation issued in the early April an enforcement notice warning all airlines that they have to give refunds to passengers whose flights were canceled or significantly changed. And U.S. airlines seem to be quite willing to comply as far as I can see from here, from north of them, uh, certainly way more compliant than Canadian ones. What I am seeing is that many Canadians who complain about Swoop or Wedgett or Air Canada to DOT uh, still don't get an outcome from the airlines. And I would hope that ultimately, at least the U.S. Department of Transportation will be issuing a hefty fine to those Canadian airlines that disregard U.S. law. And, you know, if they want to do business in the U.S., they have to act by the U.S. law. When we yeah. talk about Canadian law, the Canadian law is also it's a bit differently structured, but uh, the essential principle is present here, of course. It's a very fundamental principle of contract law. If services are not being delivered, not being performed, um, then the airline doesn't necessarily owe compensation to passengers for the harm caused by non-performance because we understand that this is an unusual situation. But the bare minimum they have to do is give back the money they took. That's a no-brainer. And, and are we seeing this pretty much across the board or is it just one or two airlines that are struggling to do this right now? In Canada, it's across the board. Air Canada, really? WestJet, Swoop, uh, Sunwing, Air Transat, all of them are engaging in this unlawful behavior. They, you need to know that there are already now three class actions in Canada, two of them directed against uh, those uh, five major uh, airlines, and uh, one, of, one of the two is actually also against their associated uh, travel uh, tour organizers, you know, like if they're kind of vacations, budget vacations, sending vacations so against those transit tours. Those are also targeted in the Quebec uh, class action, and there is a class action in the federal court, which is against just the five major Canadian airlines, uh, Air Canada, Air Transat, Swoop, um, Sunwing, um, and WestJet. Why is this happening? Because I haven't heard about this happening with other places. I mean, if you went, if you had theater tickets, they, I, I believe they've refunded your tickets or whatever else. Why has the airline industry not done this? Airlines are concerned about their cash flow, and they are trying to use the public's money as a non-refundable, interest-free cash advance. But that would, okay, so when this all comes back, we've heard about the billions of dollars that airlines have lost and the struggles the industry is in right now. Would you not want to be doing all you can to make sure you have great customer service so when this is over, people are going to be clamoring to get back to you rather than mad at you for holding on to your money? You are perfectly right. The airlines are engaging in a kamikaze uh, mission now because this is extremely short-sighted of them. It may save them some money now and may appear to keep them afloat now, but I can assure you that come, you know, 2022 and if uh, the COVID-19 has been dealt with one way or another, uh, people will be preferring, for example, to fly with U.S. airlines that have actually refunded their money uh, over Canadian airlines that have kept their money or that you had to actually go all the way to court in a class action to, to get back your money. Uh, I, I certainly encourage everyone to have a long memory about this. And it baffles me why the airlines are doing it and why they feel that they have to do it, uh, why they think they can get away with it. Because after all, the airlines are not the only people who are in a dire financial situation mm -hmm. now. Sure. I, a lot of their customers the are. Average Canadian, 
Yes, exactly. People who may be out of their jobs, people who need to buy food, pay for their rent or their mortgage, uh, pay utility bills. Well, these people are in equally or even worse situation than those large corporations. So if we accept that those large corporations can break the law and simply not refund your money, then what happens next? Will people be just walking over to the supermarket and uh, filling up their baskets and walking out without paying cash and just give vouchers and say, well, once I'm recovering from those financial issues, I will pay you. Um, I'll try that one, Gabor. Yeah, I'll I'll try that at the store (laughs) next week and see how that goes. And I'll be in touch with you and let you know if it works. Uh, Listen, we got to run, unfortunately, but I I really appreciate (laughs) your time today. Thanks so much for doing this. Always love having you on. Thanks for the time. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're bringing Don Robertson, though, right now, as we do, as I say, every Monday at this time, owner and operator of ComChoice Realty and the guy who runs the Dundas Real McCoys, at least when he's allowed to, um, and a man who uh, you can see these days driving his tractor, cutting acres and acres and acres and acres of grass on his place when it's not covered in snow. Don, how are you? I'm great, Scott. How are you? I was going to cut the grass Saturday. Yeah, not so much. Grass Saturday, and I looked out and I went, you know what? I'm not doing this in the snow in May. I'm not well, the our pool was supposed the to drawer, be open today. No, our, a real donk, our pool was supposed to be open today. To yeah, and we said no, thanks. Not that we don't need a pool open when it's snowing. That's uh, I'm not that brave. Does it have a heater? Does it have a heater? Yeah, it does, but I don't want to spend $4,000 in gas on the first week to heat it. I mean, right now, if Titanic was in our pool, it would hit an iceberg. (laughs) You're right. It'd probably cost you about $40 a minute. Yeah, that's right. And I don't need to swim that badly. I can use a shower or a bathtub. One of the concerns uh, on sports related is that that carbon tax is working so well. And now... The prime minister has the country shut down, um, which is not his fault. But I think we need more carbon in the air. I mean, this weather is crazy. I'm with you. Everyone should be idling in their cars for at least half an hour every morning. Yeah, I think there's no carbon. And look at the mess we're in. Anyway. So uh, I got a bunch of stuff I want to get to you about today. But uh, let me let me start with this one because I, as soon as I saw this yesterday... I thought, I'm going to ask Don because, you know, Don is not a man who suffers fools. Um, and believe me, I know that. I've been on the, uh, I've been on the end of a few zings over the years. <laughs> so I'm, I'm on Twitter the other day or yesterday, scrolling through just yesterday, wasting some time as, you know, I do. And one of the sports networks, I won't uh, say which one, has been running this series of polls on which is the best player from each Canadian NHL franchise. And so I get to the one for the Edmonton Oilers and there's a picture of a few guys and it says, who is the best oiler of all time? Is this the dumbest poll anyone has ever tried to do ever in any department, in any category ever? They may have been able to fill that one in and not had a vote on it. That would be my guess. I mean, what sense does that make? Like the greatest Montreal Canadian, you could probably have a debate with the greatest Calgary Flame, any of the greatest players of any franchise that have ever played in the National Hockey League from Canada could be included in that poll or survey, except the Edmonton Oilers. Maybe any team, because I mean, I was thinking, okay, Mario Lemieux as well. But even with the Pittsburgh Penguins, you could have a legitimate debate about is it Mario or is yep. it Sidney Crosby. The Edmonton Oilers are the one team that if anybody answered that poll and didn't check off number 99, they should be forced to pee into a cup and have a test done because they're on something. Well, per- perhaps they did it to see if that would be the only unanimous one. If you want to give them any credit. Oh, you all. know that. You know, you know that there's always going to be one or two people out there who are going to check off Dave Semenko or Ron Chipperfield. Or there could be, or there could be some kids. Just now, because remember, Gretz, Gretzky's been gone twenty-one years, so there could be a sixteen-year-old 
that says Connor McDavid. Like in his lifetime, that would that would probably be the correct answer with no research or no um, no respect for history. It would be a bad answer. That is stunning that it's been 21 years. No, <clears throat> that is stunning that it's fly. 21 years yeah. that Gretzky's been not playing. Well, I, you don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. Even I picked this one that he would probably retire in 1999. He could he have made a few more million dollars? Sure, he could have. But he, I think, fashioned himself like a true pro, pro Bobby Orr. And you now Bobby was forced from the game, but uh, I think he probably looked at Bobby Orr when he left at the top of his game. Gretzky didn't leave at the top of his game, but certainly is still quality NHL player versus Gordy Howe who didn't play in an era when you could make millions and millions and millions of dollars, but it's all in perspective, right? He still made a lot of money. Who played till he was 54? Like there, yeah. I would, and I, I doubt that, I doubt he would have. I doubt he would have if the money had been what it is today. I really doubt that Bobby, or no. that Bobby, uh, the Gordy Howe, pardon me, would have played till he was 54 if he was making 10 or 12 million a year at his peak. I agree. Now, I think the attraction of being able to play in, in, in the WHA with your sons, maybe you come back for a year to say you did it, because I don't think it's been done before. It certainly will never likely, well, it won't happen now. shouldn't say that, but it probably won't ever happen now. I mean, who's going to, what kind of a nut would do that? And who's going to be good enough? Um, Yarmie Yager, though, um, yeah. he had a kid when he was 20. Certainly could have played uh, in the KHL with his son, but it's going to be. Fun. So we're talking about Gretzky. We're talking about Gretzky, and did you happen to watch? Because uh, they played this weekend. They replayed the '87 Canada Cup, all three games of the final, the last two that were from Cops Coliseum. Did you uh, happen to watch any of that on the weekend? No, I didn't, and I was one of the 876,000 people that were actually at the game. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I was at the game and I was with Kenny Hobart, who was quarterback for the Ticats at the time he came with me and Mike Dirks and, um, it was pretty cool. And I saw you tweet that and then I didn't get to it Sunday afternoon. So I'm kind of kicking myself cause I'd love to watch that game. There's not many games in the world I would rewatch, but I've never seen that game on TV because I was at the game. <clears throat> I will say this about it, a couple things, and one of them I want to ask you about. The one thing is there are no buildings or very few buildings that I've seen that were that loud all through the game, which which was you know fantastic. It looked great on the city of Hamilton at that time, that it was just mayhem the whole time, and there was so much excitement in that place, and the, the game just caught such a... Uh, it just caught such fire with people that it was just, it was amazing to watch, not just what was on the ice, which everybody talks about as maybe the greatest series ever, but certainly in the stands. But Don, the other thing that jumped out and, and my son, who's 22, he was watching with me for a little bit of it. And his comment was immediately, and, and I had noticed the same thing. There was that the rules have changed since 1987. There was so much hooking and interference and, late hits and jumping into guys and stuff that today would get you suspended, certainly get you penalties. I mean, there would have been five penalties on every single shift by every single player at that time. And yet that was arguably, as I say, it's seen by a lot of people as the greatest series ever. And I got wondering, would that have been even better if we'd been playing with modern rules where everybody was allowed to skate and do whatever they wanted, or was the fact that it was Canada and the Soviets and they hated each other still, and it was not warfare, but it was nasty. Did, did that make it better? Which would have been a better situation? The rules played on, on the way they were, or if we had brought the modern rules, if we could have instilled the modern rules back then and said, everybody just skate around and do whatever you want. Well, it brings up a couple of interesting points. I mean, there, it was the the Cold War was over, so but the Russians were still the bad guys. The U.S. were wanting to be bad guys. Um, the thing that comes to mind when you bring up a question like that, because every era is individual to itself, right? We've talked before about Phil Esposito's two and a half minute shifts, two minute thirty second shifts. <clears throat> 
the, the makeup of the team under today's rules would have eliminated a lot of the characters and players that were in the game. Um, I think Gretzky would have been the greatest player he and or to ever play the game in any era because of their skill and their vision of the ice. But the makeup of the uh, Canadian team would have been far different because some of those guys that were defensive guys were good at hooking, were good at interfering. And if you open it up, they wouldn't have been on the team. So it would have been a totally different makeup. I think you leave things as they are, as one of the greatest series. I'm not convinced it was the greatest series. I'm old enough to have been able to watch as a young teenager the 72 series. That was a pretty cool series. Um, but in modern in modern day, if you can call 1987 modern, it was uh, it certainly was a series to remember. But it would have been a whole different team. There would have been guys there that have been defensemen that couldn't have played in that team. It would have. Because the Russians would have had all their skilled guys out there. And who knows Who knows how it would have ended up if Russia would have had all their speedsters there instead of some of their muckers there. Same as us. I think we, we'd have been fine. I don't mm-hmm. know how that deep the Russians were. But we had lots of guys that could fly that didn't make that team because they weren't tough enough, they weren't gritty enough. And in today... You need you need a bit of grit, but you really need speed and you really need skill. So it would have been an entirely different type of series, equally entertaining, perhaps. It, it concerned me when I watched it, though. Not concerned. That's not the right word because I mean, obviously, I'm not lying in bed awake at night wondering what would have happened in 35 year old hockey series. But um, if you had not been able to hook or slow down the Soviets the way they played. I'm not, I'm, you know, all three of those games ended 6-5 and Canada won 2-1 in the series. I'm not convinced the Soviets don't win that if it's in today's rules. On the flip side, uh, you know, Wayne Gretzky, weirdly, if you watch it, Wayne Gretzky almost never seemed to get hooked. Mario Lemieux did, though, all the time. And so, you know, different spots on the ice or whatever. I don't know. It's, um... It was fascinating to watch, though, because you just, you cannot, we're so used to now for the last four or five years, Don, maybe more than that, I guess it is more than that, watching the new rules and what's a penalty. And it's it, it, it becomes this thing where you can't stop noticing, that's a penalty, oh no, they didn't call it, that's a pe- oh no, I didn't call that. oh that's, a, it's just one after the other after the other. And after you watch it for 15 or 20 minutes, you start saying, you know, I like the way the game is now. But I kind of also like the way the game was then. If you're gonna, either one is fine as long as you're all in doing that one thing. Okay, two thoughts. First of all, the Russians aren't dumb. They recognize the fact that if you were going to be all over Gretzky, it was likely going to be an automatic penalty because they use NHL referees, and Gretzky was always given the benefit of the doubt. So they were smart enough to leave him alone as difficult as that has to be, because the last guy on the planet in 1987 you wanted to leave unimpeded was Wayne Gretzky. So it would have been far more difficult for them, and Team Canada knew that they were going to use NHL referees. They knew the style that they would call. They knew what they could get away with. Again, that was part of the construction of the team. And again, it would have been also, because the Russians understand the game, they would have known it's going to be NHL referees, and they would have watched all kinds of film and saying, wow, we've got to take Boris instead of Victor, because, you know what, Boris is a mucker, and he'll he'll be able to play that style. Victor's a great skater. I, I'm not sure they would have won it, because I think they would have had different teams. So I don't know as we can say hmm. we know how the outcome would have turned out or how it would have ended up but boy there was there was still i think even to this day if you have a tournament and you had a big tournament and everybody could send three teams i still think we dominate because we have the depth that a lot well of there were have. yeah no there were i i lost track i didn't count all of them i, I counted it once upon a time there were something like 14 or 15 hall of fame players on the canadian team in that tournament which is well, playing on that tournament could get you in the Hall of Fame. Oh, there's another Hall of Fame. Oh, there, that guy's in the Hall of Fame. There, there was a point, I think, if I recall correctly, the um, the last shift, it's Gretzky who's in the Hall, 
and it's Lemieux who's in the hall and it's Howard Chuck who's in the hall and it's Larry Murphy who's in the hall and it's Paul Coffey who's in the hall and it's Grant Fuhrer who's in the hall. Every Canadian guy on the ice at the end ended up in the Hall of Fame. And I have no idea how many of the Soviets did. So here's the amazing part of the goal that won it for us. It's a two-on-one with Gretzky and and, uh, Murphy. Larry Murphy's heading to the net exactly what he should have been doing. All Gretzky has to do is dump it over and Murphy taps it into the uh, open net. This is how much confidence... And is a national hero. This is how much confidence Wayne Gretzky has in Larry Murphy's ability to just put his stick on the ice and let Gretzky deflect it, <laughs> deflect it in. He drops it back to the slot, and Lemieux drives it over the Soviet's shoulder. I mean, the easy play is to Murphy, but he looks Murphy off for the tap in and gives it to Lemieux. That's now, how much to be Gretzky fair, to win. He, he felt better that Lemieux, who would be famous for the goal, that that would ensure the victory. To I'm be selfish. fair, Larry Murphy's stick was on the ice when you watch the replay, but it is interesting to think of how different would things be if Larry Murphy was the Canadian hero, not Mario Lemieux. But the other thing, we've got to go to a break here. In that two-on-one, if you watch it, you'll notice that one of the Soviet defensemen falls down, but didn't really fall down. Dale Howarchuk kind of gave him a little tug, a little hook that, again, back then, completely let go all through the game, no issue. Today, that play ends because you're going to have a penalty called on that play. Just one of those weird little things. Doesn't mean Canada doesn't win. It's just, man, it was a different world, which was even a different world from 72 when you could almost kill someone and you got away with it. Tackle guy. Um, I'll tell you, though, I know you got to go to a break, but I'll tell you, as a former referee and refereeing, uh, you know, I, I was uh, refereeing senior and junior A at the time, I'll tell you, it was a lot more difficult because you had to pick one you were going to call because you're right. There was three or four penalties on every shift. And the difficulty in refereeing is which one is the most egregious and you have to pick them. Uh And that's always a tough job today. It's a lot easier. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Don Robertson, as we do every Monday from seven till eight, about all things sports, which uh, Don these days is a lot of replays of sports. I've uh, I've seen more replays of more games. Um, <laughs> I must say, I was sitting in front of the TV on uh, Saturday, flipping channels for a few minutes, and I think that at least one of the sports networks doesn't really understand the word classic because when they called the, <laughs> on the TV listings, it said MLB classic game. And it was like a mid September game from 2016 between the Jays and Yankees. That was a nondescript. Game. And I was like, wait, I, I don't think they understand classic ever. Not every game can possibly be a classic. I I'll tell you what I do know. If this carries on much longer, the definition of classic will drop further and further and further down the totem pole. If you think you're seeing games now they're calling classics that aren't, you wait till what's going to happen in June and July. They're going to say, well, this may not be a classic, but it was a great regular season game between the Oakland Seals and the Los Angeles Kings in October. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the... The Golf Channel is going to be showing 1974 highlights of the Greater Barry Open. <laughs> well, think about, uh, think about things, things like the Golf Channel. I mean, they could do weeks and weeks and weeks of great shots and funny shots. You know, the, the ball going into the crowd and hitting the old guy right in the melon and bouncing over by the pin. And they got lots of bloopers they can run. Not well, every sport does, I think. Every sport does. But here, one of the things too, so we're talking about replays because that's that's what they're doing a lot of right now as we wait. I mean, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about things getting back into business. But so last night on, I don't even know which channel it was on, they were showing a documentary of the 1970 Boston Bruins Stanley Cup win, the one that um, ended with Bobby Orr flying through the air and scoring the Stanley Cup winning goal. Now, I don't think there's any doubt that that goal is number 1A in most famous hockey photos of all time. Maybe 
one B or one C. I think there's three of them. I think the, the miracle on ice photo is in that group. I think the Paul Henderson goal is in that group. And I think the Bobby Orr photo are the three hockey photos that everybody has seen, no matter where you are. But Don, that series has come to be defined by that. And we now think of that series as a classic series. And I got to tell you, watching that documentary, it was, uh, it was a reminder to me. I mean, that's a photo. That's, oh, it's a tremendous picture, especially when you consider the photographer doesn't have a motor drive like they do now on their camera. He had one shot at it, and he got it perfect. But man, to have that photo wrap up that series, that series was an absolute dud. We forget that. I mean, the, the St. Louis Blues were the best of a really, really crappy lot of expansion teams then. That's right. The the interesting part is that a lot of people won't remember that made I if I recall correctly Scotty Bowman, zero for twelve with the St Louis Blues in Stanley Cup Finals, post nineteen sixty seven, which happens to be the last time the Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup. But you're, they were zero for twelve. That was the only game that was even close. The rest you're not talking about series. Up. You're talking about games. Yeah, you're talking about games. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that yeah. was the best game in that series, and that's always the case. Generally, you don't generally see a, an elimination game as a dud. I mean, they're going to give it their all, so they try and gain some kind of respect. But that's you're right. That was the best team in the expansion era, and they had the original six in one division, and the new teams in another division. It was almost like six real good American League teams versus the original six teams. But every series, and the St. Louis Blues made it to the Stanley Cup Finals three years in a row and were 0 for 12. 0 and 12. That's not a good record. Which tells you how bad the other expansion teams were. And I mean, St. Louis had Glenn Hall and they had Jacques Plante, which was why they were competitive. They had by far the best goaltending. But it, it was a reminder that while that photo is perfect i mean it really is it's a perfect photo it's not like bobby Orr scored a goal that we never saw coming and that was out of the blue and that put i mean boston was look that that photo we're glad that moment happened but boston was going to win that series even if bobby Orr doesn't score that goal oh it was yeah that's right i mean it wasn't like it was triple overtime pardon me triple overtime and the bruins snapped up the series and had no shot of winning it going in. I mean, it was a foregone conclusion who was going to win the Stanley Cup before that series started. It was very anticlimactic. Yeah, but no if you're kidding. talking about pictures, you're talking about pictures, that was a beauty. Well, you've got Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito and Ken Hodge and Wayne Cashman and Johnny Busick and all these guys and Jerry Cheevers versus Barkley Plagar. I, you know, I mean, it's... Uh, it was that Barkley Plager that flipped him. He, that was just him being a little pissed, I think, and saying... Uh, probably. You want to score it, that goal? It, it was a but play. It does, I don't know which one. It does remind me, though, of... So I got thinking after watching that of... That series, to me, as a result, uh, probably the most over... what Maybe the most overrated hockey series, made overrated only because of that picture. Because if that picture had not been taken, we would never even think about that series in legendary playoff series. But they do a whole documentary on it because of that photo. The I, I was trying to think about it. What other sports moment rises to the level of that being that overrated? And not the player. Again, for someone who wants to write in and say, I'm saying Bobby Orr is overrated. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. Uh, the series was overrated as a memory. And the only thing I could come up with, Don, off the top of my head this afternoon was the uh, Bobby Riggs, Billy Jean King tennis exhibition <laughs> that is now held up to be this wonderful moment in female power and all this stuff. And it was a 55-year-old man playing the number one woman in the world at the time. And... Yeah. You know, I mean, like when you think it, it, this was not Billie Jean King toppling a top ranked male player. And it, to me, they see the part about this, that 
it, it doesn't mean Billie Jean King wasn't a great player. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means it was a stupid thing. It was, it was, you were playing against a guy who was designed to be beaten. It was, this was not a, to me, this was not a triumph of something. It was stupid, but we, it's held up as this great moment. It was an execution in brilliant marketing. That's what it was. Bobby Riggs, Bobby Riggs come up with a warm up jacket and it was a big deal because he had a chocolate bar logo on the back of his warm up jacket. I mean, it was an absolute marketing dream. It would have been like having Annika Sorenson beating Arnold Palmer when Arnold Palmer was 60 years old and Annika was the best women's golfer in the world. I mean, the outcome should be obvious, but it would have been, well, I don't think we'd buy that today, but back in, back, you know, 100 years ago, it was saleable. And they were doing lots of stuff like that back then, Scott. There was... There was showdown in hockey. There was Loved all kinds it. of quirky, odd things that they would do. Um, oh, what was that series? Evil can evil. Evil can evil was the that, big deal. at his peak. Yeah, no, no, the, there was no. He yeah. was at his absolute height of his popularity and fame. Evil can evil back around that time. I mean, this was this was a time. When giant events, if you could, you're right. Hype was never probably, well, I I shouldn't say that. I mean, we see hype now with the NFL every single Sunday at this level, but this was the, I I think really the early days because of television, because of how television expanded and everything else. This was the early days of massive, unbelievable hype for these generally pretty stupid events, but man, people cared. It was, it, it was network driven. If you recall, I don't, can't believe ESPN was even around. So there were no nope. sports channels. The NBA was a second thought, which they're not now. The NFL was okay, but it certainly wasn't dominant like it is now. I mean, there was there were very few outside of the World Series and maybe the Super Bowl that were dominant, much-watched TV sports. So they invented stuff, and they tricked us. And everybody, it was much... It was must see TV back then. I mean, the, I mean, look the the net the networks networks must have thought we were a bunch of donkeys trying to watch this stuff. But everybody tuned in. But it was a marketing dream. To this and they day, were looking for the next one. To this day, the guy that if I could, he's passed away, so I can't. But the guy that I would love to sit down for a two or three hour interview with would be Evil Knievel, because uh, I think well, that would just be insanely entertaining to hear his stories and stuff. But there was a guy who made a fortune. He had basically killed himself about 82 times over. I mean, every time he, I don't even think he knew how to ride a motorcycle. He just, he, uh, he, he knew how to ride one. He didn't know how to land one because <laughs> every single time was a giant crash and 200 well, broken been, there's, bones. There's been documentaries about it. Now, the difference between Evil Knievel and, and uh, Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs was um, Evil Knievel risked his, risked his life every time he jumped on that motorcycle. I mean, there were lots of guys that thought they were pretty cool pulling wheelies down the street when I was a kid. This yep. guy's jumping over fountains and 75,000 buses, and it's just, you had to watch. It's one of those, it's like a car accident. You can't it drive was by a car and accident. look. No, it wasn't like a car accident. It was a car accident. It was a motorcycle accident every single time. And the, the, my, my, the thing that I've always remembered is, I don't know who put this together, but the super slow motion when he crashes, I think it was at Caesar's palace and he looked like a rag doll. I mean, just arms and legs moving in every direction and hips breaking and back snapping and femurs cracking. And, and then it was like, Hey, that's great. Let's, you know, Don, this is how different we are today. Nobody, or at least very few people, unless you're a maniac, would tune in knowing there was a very good chance that some idiot is going to crash his motorcycle and break almost every bone in his body. And you're sitting there going, oh, I got to see that. That's going to be awesome. Nobody does that well, now. And the interesting part about evil Knievel stunts, and they were made for TV, was the fact that it was a disappointment if he landed it. <laughs> That's right. When he jumped the sharks, 
which is literally where the the phrase comes from on TV now. Well, no, that's it comes from Happy Days when Arthur Fonzarelli jumped the shark. But when when Evil Can Evil jumped tried to jump the Shark Tank at the uh, at the casino, everybody was hoping that he was going to land in the sharks just to see what would happen. I mean, no one wanted to say that. And and there was a was great never, book written. There was a great book written never, about him by Lee Montville, who wrote for Sports Illustrated, and said they uh, they didn't tell anyone. But they fed those sharks so much before the jump, so so that they were so full that they would have ignored him. But nonetheless, everybody wanted to see him land in the sharks to see what would happen. And the only reason they put sharks in there is because landing in water would have been safe. <laughs> Safer. Yeah, that's right. Like the, the worst part of that would have been as he, as he strapped on a um, life jacket before he did it. They're going, well, this is no good. He's not even going to drown if he lands in there. <laughs> yeah. So let's yeah, feed him to the sharks. That'll be a lot more fun. There was no shortage of bloodthirst back in the 70s. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hockey player that you would be willing to invest the time to watch a 10-part documentary about. Bob Probert. That'd be a good one. I mean, that's, you got to, there has to be something in there. Yeah, it's uh, like, I don't think Wayne Gretzky, um, I think any of the good stuff you'd never hear about or you'd never know about. I mean, I'm sure some of the stories of the Edmonton Oilers in the 80s would be outstanding to listen to. I don't know if they'd ever see the light of day. Uh, Probert's life was kind of out there. So you've got him, you've got Charlie Simmer, um, who was married to a playboy model and, uh, but there'd be lots of interesting guys. Grant Fuhr probably would be interesting. I think, I think, uh, Probert would likely be your number one guy, maybe Eddie Shack. Um, you know, the, some of the tough guys back in the old days, I think would be, pretty interesting but they're not the best players everybody would want it to be Gretzky because he's the best player Jordan was the best arguably one of the best basketball players that ever played the game I don't know if he's the absolute best it would depend on the era I'm I always go back to nobody scored 100 points except Will Chamberlain but in today's game would you pick Will Chamberlain I doubt it would you pick Michael Jordan likely I saw you did. Wilt Chamberlain, there's a guy. You couldn't do a 10-part documentary on him unless you started to play it at about 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> I mean, the whole story he, of Wilt Chamberlain is uh, <laughs> adults only. Well, he, he allegedly slept with a couple girls, I think. Yeah, I think it was a couple times about 10,000. Yeah, there were a few. Yeah, it was pretty long list and you know what out of that 10,000 there'll be some of them deny it uh today i, I bet you most i would hope <laughs> most <laughs> right. well but i would say bob probert i mean he was an interesting character goalies are always interesting guys so maybe uh, a guy you'd like to see a 10-part series done on bernie perrant and uh yeah you know there's got to be a long time that's 10 hours and there's got to be something as i say more than just what they did on the ice and and so it's hard like derek sanderson might be a guy and a lot of people won't even know who that is um but there's a guy who you know has lived a life on and off the ice anyway it's it's a fascinating idea about who we we, we've had an ace the outdoor games and HBO used to do that road to the winter classic or taste of it. I don't yeah. know though who play a 10 part series. I really don't. And, and you said the tough guys and they're the interesting part about that is any tough guy that, that I've ever talked to, they are the most quiet, gentle, pleasant guys away from the ice. I'm not sure they'd have much of a story to tell. They really wouldn't because they, they, they were beasts on the ice, but they were generally lovely people. I don't know what you would talk about. Most of them. There's probably one or two. Yeah, yeah they're the, they were always generally the most popular guys in the room because they were going to protect you. But 
overall, they were great guys. Uh, Marty McSorley was a character. But you're right about uh, Brett Hall might be an interesting story because he would tell you likely everything because he's so out there and up front. And if you could do one on him and his dad, but again, yeah. a lot oh, there of you might go. have to be on after after eleven o'clock at night as well. <laughs> yeah, there you so. go, and throw Dennis in there as well. And man, you could really go to town. Well, um, let, so let let Dennis narrate it. Oh man, Th- then it, then it would be only on HBO. Couldn't even be after eleven o'clock at night. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.